I have a complicated relationship with mirrors. We're not what you'd call friends. When I see my reflection or a photo of myself, it's more like I'm looking at a collection of all the things wrong with me. I remember the first time someone told me that my eyes were too big, my lips were too small, and everyone at school thought I was ugly. I'm talking to you, Jenny. And I bought it. But I'm not the only one. There are entire industries built on selling us the idea that we aren't enough and we need whatever they're selling if we want to be loved and accepted, or more importantly, love and accept ourselves. Surgery, diets, exercise, cosmetics, clothing. There's nothing wrong with these things on their own, but the idea that they can fix whatever's missing, there's something really wrong with that. Don't take a photo of me. I look like shit right now. Or I'm not wearing any makeup. Or I'm out of shape. Sound familiar? But legend has it. There's a man so full of love. He's afraid of no mirror. Some say he even calls himself the mirror. His name is David Roach. And he was practically folklore when I was growing up. My mom used to talk about him so much. He's also our guest today on the podcast. David has a special relationship to self-image because his face is different. Because of a birth defect and heavy radiation, he doesn't look like most. He's seen the best and worst in people and refuses to hide or feel ashamed of his differences. He actually speaks to large audiences and is acting in an upcoming feature film. He's proof of the power of love loving yourself, loving the world, loving strangers, and he's here to share what he's picked up along his journey. Welcome to the How to Human podcast. My name is Sam Lamont, and here is David Roach. Real quick, if you like what we're doing so far, if you've listened to past episodes and that's why you're listening to this one, we really need some help. This program's audience-funded. We use a service called Patreon, and that's that's what we're going with for now of how this is going to continue to work. So the program will always remain free, but if you're in a place to where you can give monetarily, we would we could really use it. You can go to a website called www.patreon.com slash hellohuman, www.patreon.com slash hellohuman. And you're funding a lot of stuff. This is how we bought the sound equipment. This is how we paid for travel and what pays for me to sit down and edit these. I have about 10 more podcasts that need to get edited. So the more time I can spend on this, the better. Um, I also have a, a big cavity that I'd love to get fixed at some point. And there's a producer named Meg who's helping book guests and make this all possible. And so hashtag let's pay Meg. If you're not in a place to give monetarily, it's totally okay. I get it. <laughs> I'm not either. Uh, you can write us a review on iTunes, and that's also a big help. So go to iTunes, write us a review. If you have some criticism of some kind, I would prefer it if you emailed me at hello at hellohumans.co. And this program's for the listeners. So, you know, as long as it's constructive, I'd, I'd love to hear it and continue to make this program as good as we can. All right. On to the show. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Sam. Just to start us off, tell us a bit about yourself just to introduce you to our listeners. 
I guess one of my primary identities is then as someone who has a facial difference, facial disfigurement, a unique face. I should describe it as this. The left side of my face is bulgy, streaked with purple, enlarged veins. I have a couple scars here and there. Um, and uh, I've lost all my teeth due to the radiation I got when I was one year old. Um, so, uh, you know, I basically was born with an unusual face. And um, in my 40s, I quit drinking. And I met Marlena. So I had sobriety and I had love. And I kind of took off from there and uh, took these uh, comedy of recovery classes from Lee Glickstein. Lee taught us, don't tell jokes, just tell the truth. That's what's funny. And that's totally my style. And within three months, I had my first and in a couple of years, I was able to support myself, so I supported myself for the last, say, 30 years doing this. You know, there's lots of other stuff about me. I'm trying to answer the question that kids sometimes ask when I speak, when my wife and I speak or perform in schools, which is really my favorite work. But they want to know, they, they want to know, well, Okay, you say your face is a guest and that it helps you to find your duty inside yourself. Well, how can we do that? Oh, well, I don't have quite as ready an answer to that. I'm trying to answer that in my book. And when I think about it, I, I, it's all relational. I, I made choices for sure, but I was always carried along by others starting from the moment of my birth, friends, co-workers, colleagues, on and on, lovers sometimes, all good. So I'm someone who's, and now I'm happier than I ever have been in my whole life. And one of the reasons is I feel like I'm very aware of everyone who has loved me and who does love me. And I'm looking around for new people to love me. So, uh, and, and I feel able to express the love that I feel for people. And that comes from, you know, I say, my face is a gift. I had to find my duty inside myself, and that's true. But there's a second gift that's even better, and that is I can see the duty in other people now. First of all, I'm not afraid of them, as I had been sometimes in the past. And I also know that everybody is messed up, you know, so I have kind of low standards. <laughs> Those standards help you to be able to love better. Yeah, our, our whole program, our whole audio program and website is, is all about kind of acknowledging and honoring that we are messed up humans, you know, we're all... Flawed. You say um, your face is different, and you say that's a gift that you've gotten. And I see your superpower, your main gift is this ability to exuberate love for yourself and for the world around you, which maybe being born with a face that's, that looks different than most people has helped you discover 
but I see that as your superpower is immediately when you walk into the room, you can tell you, you see just beauty everywhere you go. And you've really come to a place where you feel beautiful inside and out. And that's unusual. You know, I think a lot of people, me included, struggle with that. One of the, and that's something that you really help people with, with your, your humor, but also your insight. In your book that I read, you said, most people assume I had a tough childhood. Yeah. Um, but you didn't. And mm. kids are cruel. I remember middle school was tough for me. High school was tough for me. But what I really connected with that you wrote was that when you're growing up, you didn't have these labels for yourself. I didn't have those labels for myself. My self-hatred came on later. It came on, I think, in puberty or when the hormones started kicking in and there was some, some more competition to be more attractive or be more cool. That's when I started to develop this inadequacy. Hmm. And your journey, your life journey has been about loving yourself and accepting yourself and hanging on to the people who loved you and also standing up for yourself when people didn't, when people were cruel. As an adult, you had to be the person to stand up for yourself. When was the moment you decided you weren't the monster that people had called you? That's uh, a great question, Sam. And uh, there is no one moment. It took place over uh, a period of years. I'm kind of like a very recalcitrant learner. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, for example, I got on stage in my 40s. And uh, for years, I would say three, four, maybe even no, three or four years, people would come up to me after I do a show or a talk and they'd say, David, that was so good. You changed my life. And I would think, you're pathetic. Um, <laughs> you should get a life. I didn't say that. But, you know, I did not have respect for what they were saying. I did not have respect for what I was doing, really. And it, it, I had to absorb it over a period of time. I can think of times when I got amazing compliments and love, but I got it in my head, but I couldn't quite get it into my heart. So it took place over time. And, you know, I, can, I remember uh, when I quit my day job and... Uh, I uh, had a gig, uh, a rabbi, Natan Siegel, had hired me to do the Church of 80% Sincerity, my signature show, for the high holidays. Now, how did that happen? Anyway, he hired me, and the year before, he had paid me $1,500 to do it, which I was very happy with. This year, he gave me a choice, I'll pay you $1,500, or you can produce it yourself. Now, the year before, there were like 250 people in the audience. And I thought well, I could have made like $6,000 or $7,000. So I said, okay, I'll produce it myself. Well, uh, as it turned out, we were booked during the Mill Valley Film Festival and the World Series, and it was drenching rain. So hardly anybody was there. I looked out of the dressing room, 
And I saw this tiny audience and my heart sank because I had just quit my day job. <laughs> I did the show, and in the middle of the show, I had an epiphany, which I don't have epiphanies very often. And my epiphanies seem to take years, <laughs> you know. Epiphanies. And uh, I, in the middle of the show, I realized this is a fantastic show. And I am a great performer. It just like washed over me. And I've never lost that core feeling. So I got that. that. That's a moment that I remember well that happened on stage. And it was on stage that a lot of my healing took place, too, to get out there in front of hundreds of people and be talking about facial difference. And it's kind of a meta, meta way to do it because I'm talking about something that's taking place. A lot of my healing comes from publicly working through it. Uh-huh. I mean, every time I listen to uh, my own voice, <laughs> I have to. I have small moments of growth, like you said, s- small, slowly, no epiphany. Every time I put myself out there to be judged or criticized, I feel like I have small moments of growth. I listened um, to a Q and A you uh-huh. did, and you touched on this where people would come up to you after one of your talks and they would say they would tell you about their own self-hatred things that they've gone through and you originally were just like you've got to be kidding me yeah you hate yourself because you have freckles yeah you know i do that in a lot of ways i do that uh when people uh are telling me genuinely about hardships they're having and i feel like you have no idea i've been to hell and back you haven't been in a custody battle you haven't Mm -hmm you know, had to worry about never seeing your son again. You haven't been in jail wondering if you're going to be there indefinitely or forever. And uh, that's the first thing I do is I make, I somehow make what I'm going through unique. You don't know, you have no right. And so I'm interested to hear about what helped you or what is helping you to really be a beacon. And although people might not have the same level of, of hardship or of uh, obstacles in the way? What has led you to, because you clearly now, uh, I've heard more recent conversations with you, you clearly now have become somebody who listens to people in regardless of what they're going through. If it's hard to them, you're you're in, you get it. Well, I love this topic, Sam, and I, and I love talking about this stuff. I, uh, ask me again, I just had a senior moment. <laughs> That's okay. So when it comes to... Oh, okay. I, I have it now. Okay. okay. First of all, having freckles and having what I have are one and the same. And feeling bad about anything is the same as what I have, is the same as someone who has a, uh, ALS or whatever. Because my belief now, one of the things I've learned from being, being on stage is that uh, everybody feels disfigured. And it doesn't matter if it's freckles or uh, uh, vascular malformation as I have. I believe that everybody has like a little place inside them where fear and guilt and shame reside. And you need to deal with that to grow emotionally and spiritually and if you and I have done that to a certain degree and that's what I symbolize to people 
that every and the reason my I thought when I first got up on stage, I don't have any right to do this the way I look. I'm just so weird. But I realized that my work is universal because my experience is universal. I am out there. I'm not different from you. I'm exactly the same as you, only enhanced. And uh, so the stuff that I've dealt with is the same as the stuff that you're dealing with. In that little place inside yourself where you feel bad about yourself, it can be anything, uh, is the place where if you don't deal with that, that's where the predators come to feed. Sexual predators, financial predators, political predators, predators, warmongers, on and on. And I just had some advantages that allowed me to heal that a bit. I, and I certainly met other people who have, but in our society, in our political economic system, it's profitable to prey upon that fear and that feeling of a lack of self-worth, shame, etc. And I think it's become reified. Is that the word I want? I don't know. You know, in the, in the, in the West, in the Judeo-Christian canon, it's you're a sinner. You know, you're, you're fallen out of God's favor. You know, you need redemption. You're evil. You're St. Augustine in 400 AD invented original sin. He's like, geez. You're, so you're filth from the moment of birth. And by the way, he maintained that original sin was transmitted through semen. So <laughs> I don't know why I mentioned that. Okay. And, <laughs> it's like the Dr. Luth of his day. That, uh, and in the East, it's all oh, it's karma. You did something in the past lifetime. Your parents did something. You had karma. You did a bad thing. You know, so it's worldwide to a great degree that, uh, you know, like, you're bad, you're bad, you're evil, you're a sinner, you're shameful, you messed up somehow, and you've got to suffer. That's your fate. That's what it means to be human. Hey, no wonder you feel bad about yourself, because it's everywhere. Oh, and then on the TV, it's like, well, is that a temple? Oh, my goodness, you'll have to do something about that, because you're pretty disgusting. Uh, okay, there's a little rant. I welcome your rants here. Fear, <laughs> fear and shame are, yeah, they're great selling tools and they are, I mean, it's part of the human condition. It's not necessarily, you know, on their own. I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing we need to get rid of, but it is something that we need to be aware of and make sure that it doesn't control our lives. I think a certain degree of fear is, is good for survival and for, you know, making important decisions. And but I mean shame maybe not so much uh, maybe a little bit less yeah, useful. Generic shame that's not useful. Guilt I kind of wish there were a few more people who actually felt guilty, but just the way it is. I'm not going to mention any names. I, I actually can think of a few times where shame has uh, helped me change some of my behavior. So yeah, I can't say that shame is all bad. A line I loved from you um, to quote you: "I prefer grace to miracles." Miracles made me lazy. I loved immediately. I had a sense of accountability kind of wash over me when I read that, mm -hmm. where grace is not necessarily something that just comes from nowhere. 
you you put it in a way where you know grace is something that you you work towards and grace is something that you know is actually somewhat in your your control of of what you do so tell us about grace how you see it like what does grace look like and then also what does finding grace which i think is a really admirable thing to to focus some energy on what does finding grace look like i had a dream when i lived in mill valley california we were right next to mill creek and uh, at certain times of the year when the sun was setting uh, it would slant through the redwood trees across the creek and you could see all the spider webs that crisscrossed and all the insects that were flying through the creek. And it was a lovely time of the day. In my dream, uh, the Blessed Virgin, that's the Catholic thing, uh, Mother Mary, if you will, came to me and said, that's the way grace is. It's woven throughout the world like that. And you've been privileged to see it. So I, I do not see myself as finding grace. Grace, in, uh, and I'm influenced by my Catholic heritage here, is something that is given to you. So your job is like to be open to it. Because, well, my belief is that it's available in all kinds of places. I find grace, I find what is, okay, and grace is a word that I get to use in my show and in talking to put things in a, a quasi-spiritual kind of realm because everybody likes grace, you know? Some people think, well, that's another word for good fortune or luck or blessings or whatever. However you see it, um, I believe that grace, what is sacred, maybe what is divine, I don't know, comes to me in three ways. Through uh, nature. And nature can be just looking out the window and seeing the sunrise or anything. Through loving relationships and um, through my own creativity and the creativity of others. Now, the interesting thing is, after going through a time of great crisis, I, I recognized that I was having spiritual struggles, and uh, I tried different ways to figure out what to do about that. I finally realized, okay, it's nature, it's love, it's creativity. Those are the three things I need. And I was very proud of myself for figuring that out. And then a couple of years after that, I realized what I was experiencing was what the nuns were trying to teach us at Our Lady of Grace School. They said, there are three persons in one God. This is a trinity, another a Catholic thing, a heavy influence on me. And, I, you know, of course, I'm six years old. Three persons in one God is like three heads, you know, sticking <laughs> out. Uh, and so I questioned it immediately. How can that be, you know? They said, well, David, it's, uh, it's like the shamrock. There are three leaves, but there's only one plant. Well, that wasn't too convincing. I really couldn't work it. So the nun said, well, you have to believe it. It's a mystery. You just accept it. It's a mystery. Well, I realized that like 30 years later, what I 
was convincing myself was my insight was actually my Catholic heritage. Your nature is God the Creator. Again, in the Catholic canon, God the Father. Love is Jesus, God the Son. Love one another. And creativity is the Holy Spirit. So what went round came round. Uh, and what uh, Sister Mary Imelda was trying to teach me didn't work too well, but after a while I figured it out. So that's, that's how I come to God. And was I answering a question here? Or, um, I, I feel like you did. It sounded great. <laughs> okay, I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, I think you did answer the question. Good things happen a little bit at a time. That's unfortunate for me. I wish it happened much faster. Mm. Um, <laughs> I really do. I don't know if I have a question with that. I just wish things happened faster. But do you have any insight on patience? Well, how about uh, denial as uh, a twin of patience? If you can do denial, then maybe that's as close as you can get to patience. That's what works for me. That, you know, alcohol, you know, helped in that process. I don't know. I don't think of myself as being very patient. I guess I have become more patient as time has gone by. Maybe I've just given up. Who knows? I feel like if you had given up, you wouldn't still be speaking to large crowds or you just were part of a movie, a feature film. Yeah. It's amazing. I I, I wake up in the morning and I'm... First of all, with everything that has happened to me, with surgeries and radiation that they're totally unable to measure or figure out what they did with the radiation, how much there was or where it was even targeted, I'm like sort of like the, a Spider-Man of some sort, you know? Maybe that's it. Maybe because I got that radiation, I'm still alive today and doing all this stuff. Now, I'm out there... Uh, uh, principal role in a feature film, and the, the director is legit. I mean, one of his, Alexander Franke, one of his films got Best Canadian Feature at Toronto International Film Festival a few years ago, and he took the teaser for this film, which is called Happy Face, uh, to Cannes. You know, so he plays with the good boys. So I'm going to be out there, you know, at, at, at age... Next year, at age 74, when the film is completed in May, and it goes to the festival, I don't know. I, I just kind of roll with it now. I don't have any... I just sort of take what comes my way and just kind of sit here and let it happen. People call, will you from the street? Okay, I'll do it, you know. I love... I went to, uh, you know, this film, uh, Wonder, came out recently about this boy who had... Uh, a facial difference and his experiences as he enters school for the first time in fifth grade. And, you know, this is my world. I know many people with facial differences. And so it's very, it becomes very popular. It's a feel-good uh, kind of film. Anyhow, a couple of local schools called me and said, will you come and talk to the kids? They have gone to see, the whole school has gone to see Wonder. Um, so I go... And I just, this is my favorite work. This is the best thing that I do. When, and I talk to them and answer their questions, and I tell a story. My mother used to tell me, David, you are so smart. You could do anything you want to do. Really, honey, anything. And 
I realized the audience really liked this, so I started saying it to the audience. And then I realized when I was looking at kids, I wanted to say it directly to them. So like at the West Seashell Elementary School, the day before yesterday, I just went out and looked at the kids, a couple hundred of them sitting there in the gym. I went right up to them one at a time, not all 200, but like seven or eight of them, and said that, honey, you're so smart. You could do anything you want to do. And I see their faces light up. And I know that just that one time can really change people. Because I, I asked other people, well, what did your mother and father say to you? And I, I remember this was just a few months ago. My friends told me, oh, yeah, these are really intelligent, highly successful people say, oh, nobody ever said anything like that to me. What? How can that be? How can you have a life where people don't say that to you? A childhood. Maybe you just don't remember. No, nobody ever said that. Holy shit. How can someone make it? Without, so you've got to find that someone. And I can do that. I can do that. And yeah, it is somehow just the way I am. I don't even have to do that much. It's just like, oh, here's this disfigured guy. Look at him. He feels so good about himself. He's arrogant, even. Um, okay, more rambling. Yeah, that's what I like, to tell kids to have that. And if there's a target demographic, it's like a 12-year-old girl who is just at that age when it's just starting to come down on her. As I remember when my daughter was 11, and she came home from school and she said, Dad, is my butt too big? I thought, oh, no, God. So there's no escape. There's no escape. I have two slogans. One is, just because it's hopeless, that's no excuse. And the other is, think negative, but act positive. That's, uh, that's what gets me through the, the difficult times. Yeah, a great phrase I've heard in uh, recovery is, you can't think your way, or you yeah, you can't think your way out of bad thinking. You have to act <laughs> you have to act your way out of bad thinking. And that means taking the action. Words of encouragement are so powerful. Um yeah. and they're free to give. And when you say that, I think about wow, that's something you know, uh I'm not <laughs> financially uh well off right now, but wow, that's that's totally free. I could give lots of, you know just positive words to people, hopefully not in a, uh, in a creepy way. So, uh -huh. but that's one thing I'm going to actively try and do at least for the next week is give some more <laughs> words of encouragement. I know several times in my own experience, um, I had written a story or released an episode of the podcast and just felt awful just felt like a failure, you know, for no particular reason other than I'm an artist and that's very common. <laughs> and, um, so true. And, you know, I've had pieces get a lot of compliments, mm -hmm. but more often than not in those moments of doubt or fear or like, I got to go find a day job, you know, this, I'm not as gifted as I think it was generally one person who sent an email or who wrote a Facebook comment or who uh, reached out to me in one way 
that just said, I am so glad you made that. At least three or four times I was seriously considering my options, considering quitting, considering doing something that uh, made more logical sense of a, a thing to pursue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was little words like that, just mostly from strangers who took the time uh, to write a few sentences that just saved me. Oh, yeah. I s- you save them all in a file, uh, right? You save all the encouraging words. Oh, no, I, ha- I got to go back and do that. You better, yeah. That's worth saving. It's, uh, then you can go back and get them again and remember. That's so nice. One of my great joys in life now is to be generous. And it's the most fun. Now, I've always been kind of just naturally generous with time and energy. That's the way I was brought up. And you know, probably in some ways it's a coping mechanism too, but... Uh, uh, now, uh, Marlena and I, Marlena is the same way. We both talk about this and we have, uh, you know, just a, a really good time doing it. Uh, and now, now, we're not well off, but we're well off enough that we can make donations and see if somebody needs a little help, you know, like a hundred bucks or something like that. That feels so good to be able to do that. Generosity. <clears throat> we will uh, gladly be the recipients of your kind gift of $100. www.patreon.com slash hellohuman. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hellohuman. It's going to feel great. Promise. One of my favorite insights of yours is, and I know you probably wouldn't frame it this way, but this is how I would frame it, uh-huh. is that part of your journey on this planet has been a time traveler and that's how i think of it when i was hearing the story about you at the first boy girl sleepover party Uh and the experience was bad but the way you wrote it had a different ending and then you said you know basically somebody rejected you Yes. And the way you wrote it in your book was, and then I said, you know you want me. Uh And and we went and had a great night after that. And then you say, but that happened 25 years after. (laughs) And it was this practice you do of going back to negative or cruel memories and rewriting them, if if nothing for the sake of survival, you know, rewriting them into how it should have gone and that that's how it a lot of insight always comes is somebody says something mean to you and the second you walk away you think of the perfect comeback right? uh, <laughs> but yeah. it's too late for that mm-hmm. but so when it comes to rewriting the past is there a actual physical routine that you do do you write it down on paper do you just say it is it a mantra i'm curious i i Developed, have developed my best work, I think, uh, improvisationally. I am an audience of fire. Okay, I'm an audience addict. Um, so when I, I, like I have a routine, I produce a little show once a month in our town called Creative in the Creek, 
we have just lots of creative people where I live, and so I have six 15-minute sets for people to try their poetry, their new songs, uh, uh, their music, anything. Uh, sometimes we have films. Um, and uh, I, I have a, a bit that I've done a couple times where I come on as a special guest, God. And I don't prepare for that. Uh, I just come out and say, uh, you know, I've had, yeah, God is here in Roderick's Creek, uh, just for tonight's special guest. He's a good friend of mine. Please welcome God. And so I come out on stage, and whatever happens, happens. I improv God. It's strange how people love that. I love the idea of changing memories. I just loved it. Uh-huh. I, I wrote some down that I thought could use a different ending. Uh-huh. Uh, I wrote some down that I thought could uh, could use a little creative work because at the end of the day, it's my memory, right? And you know, unless I'm uh, writing a autobiography, then I think I'm okay to change whatever memories I need to totally to to live the best life I possibly can. Well, when I tell that story about the skin the bottle and being rejected, uh, and I say, I know you want me. Um, I, know, I you know, like I said, I didn't say that till many years later, uh, but it, it's still a true story. And the truth is that there is a facially disfigured guy who feels good about himself expressing that on stage. And the kids love it. Uh, well, these are 12-year-olds, uh, and uh, I had to, you shouldn't talk like that in front of 12-year-olds. There's another uh, story I tell uh, where I asked Marlena to kiss me and for the first time, and then I said, well, the truth is I felt like a monster until she said, oh, David, I thought you'd never ask. And then it was one, two, three, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm really sexy. Um, everything changed. And when I say that, these kids just like scream with delight. And here's a 70-year-old man talking to 12-year-olds saying, yeah, I'm really sexy. Whew. And they love it um, because it doesn't have anything to do with age. It has to do with feeling good about myself and claiming it, you know, and being a little outrageous because they like that kind of stuff too, you know. Yeah, you on that one of the kind of w phrases you used was delayed understanding yeah. that these moments are important. All moments have some importance to them and it's okay to not quite understand what it means in, in the moment. And that's, that's one reason why it's good to go back and kind of apply the understanding that you have now. Absolutely. You said, um, the basic motivating factor is the desire to not be embarrassed. I think that there's a great deal of truth to that. I did too. I yeah. instant, I connected with that. I connected with, I have lost so much art to being scared of being embarrassed, not releasing it, not showing anybody. And I have lost so many opportunities to, to being afraid, whether it meant, you know, I still haven't sent one story of mine to anyone that could publish it, or I still haven't sent anything about my media company, Hello Humans, to any press outlets. Because mm -hmm. there's some fear that they'll say no, 
do you harness that in terms uh, when, let me rephrase that do you harness the desire to not be embarrassed as something you should recognize and then work against do the opposite of that feeling uh that feeling has diminished so much for me sam that uh uh, when I do recognize it, it just seems so trivial to me. I know that maybe that sounds bombastic, I don't know, but and as I think about it now, it's true. I, I don't I don't feel embarrassed. I feel I feel like a rock star. I, you say about walking into a room that people see me, they do. Uh, and, it, you know, it took me a long, long time to realize that and to come to grips with it and then be it. But I do that a lot. So you think Mick Jagger feels embarrassed? I doubt it, you know. Okay, and I'm comparing myself to Mick Jagger. Well, why not? Well, case in point, right? There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm in the thick of it. So. What, like, what can you, you got, I need something. Uh, I'm in the thick of it. The, de, the desire to not be embarrassed or humiliated is rampant in my own life right now. Yeah. Uh, where do I start? I think by being embarrassed and humiliated is where you <laughs> started. <laughs> you already started. You know, you're saying that, that, that you, it's getting worse, it's getting easier. I, I feel you like it gets easier. Um, every time I put myself out there, I feel I do feel That's like it gets. That's what you said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Is it just time? Is it just patience, or? Well, you know, I I I don't want to anticipate, but I certainly think that that's part of it. I think that you're describing how it works for you. That the the more you deal with it and choose to take that risk of being embarrassed or humiliated. Um, and, and acknowledging that there are times when, yeah, that actually does happen, although, you know, the great, great majority of the time it doesn't. So, you know, okay, it's going to happen. Maybe this is the time. You know, you do it anyway. Just because it's hopeless, it's no excuse. And think negative, act positive. Those are, <laughs> that's my wisdom. Yeah, I have, I've had a, a couple of really awful uh, hate emails. They're not hate mail uh, uh-huh. in a traditional sense, but hate emails where they basically they tell me all my worst fears. Like you, you're not talented. You should stop now. I posted one of them online. It was just so crazy. You're never gonna step out of your mom's shadow. And uh, actually, the the real criticism wasn't nearly as bad as the fear of criticism in my mind. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a nice lesson. Yeah, I just need to remember that. that. (laughs) I hear you saying the actual criticism was not nearly as bad as the fear of criticism. Oh, man. You know, if you're in the world of social media, you have to expect that kind of stuff. And my feeling is that mostly people who do that kind of thing are, are... diminished in their own minds themselves. And they're really talking to themselves, uh, making a judgment that's really applying to themselves. Now, I don't know that that's the case, and maybe sometimes I think that too, 
avoid dealing with those kind of things in my own life. But I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, the best I've been able to take that in is to realize, uh, as I say, in the first five minutes don't count. Once I realize that people stare at me, um, including kids, people of all ages, drunk people, people who are high, teenagers, um, that, uh, that 99% of the time, they don't hate me, they're not discreet. Well, they might have a flash of revulsion, um, but basically they're just getting used to me. So the first five minutes doesn't count. And once you take that into your life, and you say, oh, I can discard that, then that saves you a lot of time and aggravation. Because, uh, yeah, well, and of course, Nick, I, al I also believe that I am incredibly charming and funny, and I can, I can win over the hearts of anybody. And that's just the way I am. So I think you could do that, too. Do you? I do. You're good-looking. You're good-looking, and that's... Ten points right there. <laughs> there is nothing. I've learned that there is nothing on the outside that can fix what's going on with me on the inside. There's just nothing. I was, uh, I had Paul Williams, the songwriter, on the show. Oh, my. And he told, he told a story about the day after winning an Oscar, uh -huh. he had already gone to feeling inadequate again. You know, like the whole inside of me personally can't be filled with compliments. I've gotten compliments on, on my work, on my, on my looks, on my personality. It doesn't stick. The only thing that has stuck in terms of my growth, which is God, it's a wonderful journey. I wish it happened faster, Yeah. but it's been a great journey to, to be on this path. It are, are deep self work. You know, I've gotten, um, words of affirmation that help sustain me along the way. Uh huh. But the words of affirmation that stick, that really stick, are things that I internalized, that I took seriously, that I did the work on. And so, yeah, you know, I... Um, Give me an example. Well, there's a bunch of them. I think the, the most prominent one... Yes, would, the little in your mind. Yeah, would probably be my work. I have worked really hard to just get into a mindset of doing the work. My mom drilled that into my head, but I didn't get it until I was later. You know, that the, the final product, the final piece, the final story, the final sculpture, the final podcast isn't why I do it. I do it because I have this nudge, I have these gifts, and I just do it. And so I had a crippling critic inside of myself mm -hmm. that would tell me everything I did wasn't up to snuff. It wasn't good enough. I shouldn't even start because if I make it and it's terrible, I'm going to feel terrible about myself. And I don't want to feel terrible about myself. You know, it was always like a friend. It was kind of like, listen, you don't want to do that. You don't want to start writing because when it doesn't work out, you're going to feel awful. And so all, all, all the encouraging words that friend gave, friends gave me, and not to, not to downplay them, because in the moment, they are amazing. They're such a gift. But over the long term, it's been about coming to terms with the fact that I'm an artist, that I am here to create, and I'm not necessarily here to create 
the world's masterpieces. I'm just here to create. So I'm going to create. I'm going to do it. So that's huge. That hasn't always been the case. I probably spent four years from 22 to 26, somewhere mm -hmm. around there, where it just felt like I didn't get any of the stuff I wanted to do done because I would have to plan everything out. And if it didn't go to plan, it was a disaster. And I've done a lot of work around this. I was doing work over those four years. I just didn't know it in terms of finding, oh, yeah. finding a place where I was ready to just do some stuff. I was ready to just get it done. In the On the stories on the website, I have never once corrected a typo on any of my pieces. And I've had amazing people write to me and say, hey, there's one type, you know, it says of instead of if. And I do, I, I'm, I think one day I'll, have, I'll correct them. But for now, the purpose it serves is that it's okay for it not to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's totally okay. And to just keep going. I mean, that's it. So there, there's a lot of examples of, you know, I've caused myself a lot of pain <laughs> through a lot of really poor decisions I've made, um, alcohol and drugs and just being an asshole, mm -hmm. um, you know, neglecting friends and family or taking them for granted. And so I've caused myself a lot, a lot of pain. And, and in those moments, I've become willing to do a lot of work and put it into daily focus or put it into really the forefront of the kind of person I wanted to be or the kind of friend I wanted to be or the kind of romantic partner I wanted to be or, mm -hmm. or the, you know, just who, who I wanted to be just in terms of character and mm -hmm. habits, all things in my control. You know, there's a lot of things I want to be that aren't in my control, but if it's in my control and it has caused me pain to not do it, mm -hmm. I take a real serious stab at, at seeing if it's something I can adopt into my daily life. That's great. And I'd like to always relate it to your work, to your creativity, um, because I think that uh, the being a creative is actually very fraught, because when you are creative, you're saying, I am the creator. And who is the creator? Well, we think that that's God. So you're saying, essentially, well, I'm God, because I'm creating. And so that's, that immediately creates a difficult situation, you know, to think that you're God. But uh, the fact is that you are, really. Yeah. In terms of my creative process, I've really abandoned the idea that <laughs> my ideas are mine. I feel like they're, I like to call it the muse. I like to feel like they, they come from somewhere else and it's my job to bring them into the world. How did they come to you? And I, I, I tend to, like, I'm, I'm pretty fertile in, at 4 a.m., when I roll over, if I pay attention to myself, there's been a lot of funny stuff that's happening. I don't know why, but it does. So, if I pay attention, is you know, if I have a piece of paper on uh -huh. me and a pen, and my eyes open, if I'm working on a piece, uh -huh. random things start coming. When I'm working on a on a like this episode of the podcast, for I'll record an intro, and it'll just come little piece by little piece. But it's because I I need it, uh -huh. and I'm. Um, in a way, my actions are asking for it, uh -huh. but I don't sit, for instance, I don't sit at the whiteboard and start going, well, this is what it's going to be. This is going to be great. Oh. And this and this, I'm not, I don't really, you know, maybe, uh, I'm coming up with all this just doesn't feel that way to me. Uh -huh. feels like I'm kind of like, 
waiting for the graphics department to send in their chunk, the spiritual graphics department to send in their chunk, and then the spiritual writing team to send in their chunk. And I'm just the guy kind of gathering it together and then trying to, to arrange it into something. But I love that description. Yeah, I, I just, uh, somebody said your ideas aren't yours, you know, and I, in a way I feel that. And whether or not it's like ultimately true, when I operate from that standpoint, I feel like I produce better work and I feel like I'm happier with my work. So either way, it's a win-win. It's a, you know, I don't worry about what's ultimately objectively true when it comes to spiritual or, you know, any of these matters. All I really care about is, does it work? You know, I was an atheist for many years and uh, I was a, I was raised Christian and now I don't know what I am, but I know that if it, if I'm not in control, if I know that I'm kind of open to very spiritual people might call the universe or open to something greater than myself or mm-hmm. ideas, I do better. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a self-serving practice. You know, I do better when I believe I'm not the one running the show. So that's what I do. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So I got two, two more things for us. Sure. I'm enjoying this tremendously, Sam. Me too. This is a We're real... Getting to know you is great too. Yeah. I like that. This is a real reward for me. Good. I wrote a piece about my relationship to the mirror. Uh-huh. And you refer to yourself as a mirror for other people oh, yeah. to see their own bad self-esteem and see their own stuff that they can work through. You, are, you said, like, I'm the physical reflection of what they might have on their inside. Yeah. And so it's a real treat to get to meet you and feel the energy coming off of you. It's real contagious. And to most importantly, collect this somewhere where I'm going to get to listen to it again. And <laughs> other people will get to listen to it if this is something that they want to listen to. Thank you. In the groups you're a part of, I forgot the word you used, but they're groups for people who are born with differences. Or acquired. Born yeah. or acquired. Born or acquired. Yeah. Just give me the politically correct term I'm, I should use. There is no politically there is no. correct term. You could say, I, I understood uh, one time that if you say uh, appearance impaired, that that's what's supposed to be politically correct, but I can't, I, you know. Uh, I, I've always kind of liked this figure uh, because I feel like it's got more punch, but lots of people don't like that. But it's, uh, so I sort of settle on Unique. This is a movement that's still in its infancy. Yeah. You know, so we're figuring these kind of things out. I would say uh, unique is good, having a unique face. Because that covers a lot of ground. Yeah. So you said in the the circles of support groups of Mm -hmm. people with unique differences, Mm -hmm. there's a phrase that goes around, piss on pity. Piss on pity, yeah. That's disability-wide. Yeah, yeah. disability-wide. So yeah. it, and just for our listeners, it, it mostly refers to if people are kind of giving you pity as what they perceive as a gift. Oh, like, oh, yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes. You just kind of, eh, you just toss it. Immediately goes back into the garbage, you know? Yeah, it's like, oh, you must have suffered so. Yeah, lady, I'm suffering right now. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, like, the other one is, this only happened twice in my life that someone said, oh, I think, you know, you're so courageous. If I look like you, I, I really think I might think of killing myself. Oh. And I say, like, well, you still can. <laughs> well, so what I was curious about, when I read Piss on Pity, the first thing that I felt, because I don't, 
get a, a ton of people pitying me, except maybe. Like, n- well, you do that yourself. You that, know. <laughs> that's what I thought of. I thought of, well, piss on self-pity. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I like that. You could have gone a different direction. You could have stayed the different looking monster your whole life. You could have. You, you could, yeah. You could have hid, like you said, stand in the side of the rooms. Yeah. Not leave much. So you had your own battle with self pity in yep. a way. To yes. get to where you are, to get on stage, to talk in front of people, to write books, to be a part of a full feature film, part of your journey was wrestling with the self pity. Yeah. I, which I think that that's part of everybody's journey, really. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so I don't feel like I'm just on the net regard. I, if anything, I feel like I'm lucky because it was out there where I had to deal with it or not. You know, but I did as best I could. So when you think about where you are now and where you were, say, in the, in the years where you just started to put yourself out there, it, really early days, I'm thinking of the, the scene on the bus where you're doing a, some activism on bus routes. Yeah. And getting heckled. What do you do when the self-pity comes up? I know probably now you're in a habit of... Well, uh, it's still there. Uh, it's uh, the self-castigation. The way it comes for me is I have a situation right now where I have a friend who's uh, divorced and uh, his relationship with his ex is really contentious and uh, another child who's having difficulty and I feel like I'm wrestling with should I say something and losing aside the question of what it is I should say or do or or, uh, is that trying to think I'm God and you know being moralistic I don't know so I don't what happens is like I feel like fuck I say that the F bomb. You're oh, allowed yeah. to say oh, that. Oh okay. man, yeah, we've had. Oh some. No, I'm sorry. You should have heard my mom. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like self pity. It's like self condemnation. Mm-hmm. Stronger than self pity. Yeah. It's like condemn. You know, because I was raised Catholic. You know, and I figured I was going to hell. I didn't feel like I had much choice about that. So like. That kind of wrangles me on the inside. It's not self-tedious feeling like I'm not enough. I'm not enough. That uh, it, I, I'm driven a lot by a sense of responsibility, and that can be very positive, you know, social responsibility, social activism, stuff like that. But So I woke up this morning, you know, about, I don't know what time, 2 a.m. or something like that, and I started, like, this came on me, so I'm like, what am I, yeah, yeah, this is a feeling, you know, a love for my friend, yeah, a love for his ex, a love for their kids, how do I deal with that, how do I express love, so, maybe I don't know, so, yeah, I guess there's self-pity kind of implicit in the idea that I feel like uh, I'm failing, but that's as close as I can come to it. I don't. I don't feel sorry for myself. I. I just don't. I, I. But I also know that I drank for many years, so I had no consciousness of anything that was going on inside me. I was like an emotional zombie. It's quite possible that I felt like reams of self pity and just uh, drank it away. I don't know. I just got in the habit of not dealing with it. All right. The last thing 
Okay. So gonna, I, I like to end all the episodes like this. Okay. If you could talk to your younger self or a child out there who's coming into adulthood and might be feeling some of the, the things you felt, who feels, let's say, that they're not enough or that they're not worthy of love or attention, or what's your message? You know, you don't have to be a good boy. You don't have to be like Jesus. You don't have to try to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat. You can be who you are. You are incredibly funny. You've known that since you were 12 years old. You can't deny it. And you could just be funny all the time. And if you do that, just be yourself, and it's going to be great. And you won't have to wait till you're 34. You can get going when you're like 24 or something like that. So you get a 20-year head start. Okay, that's my lesson for you, young Dave. David, thank you for coming on the program. Sam, this has been really nice and lots of good stuff. It's good. There's lots of hard things to deal with in the world. Having times like this really helps me a lot. It helps me that I go back and I don't know what. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing it. Me too. Just bumbling through. So what's it going to be? You going to run and hide? Or are you going to dig deep? And share your beauty with everyone you meet. <laughs> How to Human is a production of Hello Humans. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. For more of what we're doing, go to hellohumans.co. And until next time, have an amazing day. Try to be kind to yourself. Oh, and write us a review on iTunes. Don't forget that part. It helps. So I'm told. Okay. Until next time.